Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, January 11th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. And I'm the theater throwback's Daniela Parcell. James, believe it or not, this is episode 1000, we think, in Broadway radio history. We're not exactly sure because apparently you had some sort of server meltdown back in the early days. So you think you got all the episodes recovered, but maybe not. But either way, we're officially counting this as episode 1000. I venture to guess that no other theater podcast can claim this many episodes, nor do I think any other theater podcast would ever want to claim this many episodes. Uh, But congratulations to you. Um, There's a reason that so many people uh, come to Broadway radio on a daily and weekly basis to, uh, to get their information. And I won't disclose download numbers, but um, they're pretty impressive. And that's all because of what you started uh, way, way back many centuries ago. Uh, not long after the Bible began, but um, but congratulations the, with yeah, in when, your amazing Technicolor dream coat. When the Earth started to cool, I started making podcasts. <laughs> yes. So uh, so congratulations. We've got some some fun things coming uh, here shortly, and uh, and we'll unveil those kind of in you know in collaboration or in celebration of hitting the four digit podcast episode mark. Um, Man, I'm tired just thinking about the last two years, uh, let alone thinking about doing it for nine years. Now, granted, half of those episodes have come from in the last couple of years because we've been doing it every day, but that's still quite an accomplishment. Well, uh, I have to say I could not have done it without you. You are the driving force, Matt Tamanini. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I, I'm, I've been along for the ride. All right. First up in the news, Google starts vetting Broadway ticket resellers. Yeah, there's a, another great article by someone who's becoming one of our favorite go-to people in the theater industry, Mark Hirschberg over at Forbes. You've heard us talk about him many times. And today, rather than just talking about what his article was about, we decided to bring Mark in so that he can talk to us about it because he is obviously much more expert in these topics than we are. Mark, thank you first off for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So this article seems to be following uh, along in a line of a lot of different efforts being made by different organizations and different municipalities to try to curb the rampant scalping online ticket resellers um, that are plaguing all industries, but especially theater. And you wrote about how Google is kind of going above and beyond and taking some steps that the federal government decided not to pursue and in order to kind of make sure that things are as clear as possible for people who are trying to buy tickets. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of these steps that Google is implementing are? Yes. So beginning on Monday, January 8th, Google implemented a new certification uh, program where uh, ticket resellers, um, which are um, StubHub and all the other websites on the internet other than uh, Ticketmaster, Telecharge, and ATG, and like the roundabout organizations, uh, ticketing service, mm-hmm. uh, will need to submit an application uh, where Google will basically inspect uh, their website and make sure that uh, it, disc- it clearly discloses that it is a reseller as opposed to an authorized uh, or official vendor. Um, and then also it will need to um, provide a price breakdown before the, uh, during the check, uh, checkout process before the customer provides the payment information, making uh, clear 
um, all the taxes and any fees that have been added. And actually, beginning in March, uh, the resellers will also need to um, provide the face value of a ticket along with the reseller's price in the same currency so that it's very clear mm. to customers um, that uh, they are paying a higher price than they would going directly to the box office. And then also, um, per- perhaps most important, is that they're going to be cracking down on the domain names and subdomain names. Uh, so uh, the resellers can no longer use uh, website domains that are like uh, richardrogerstheater.com, something that has the name of the venue in it or the words like official that uh, would imply that they are an official vendor when they're not. Um, so Google is trying to make uh, ticket purchasing on the internet more transparent. And yesterday, um, as you might have seen, uh, the Broadway League released a report, um, their annual demographics report. And they said that, at least within New York, um, half of all uh, ticket, uh, ticket uh, theater goers purchase their tickets on the Internet. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, the Internet is becoming more and more of a marketplace for ticket sales. And with hits like Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen and Bruce Springsteen, uh, which I actually saw um, on oh, uh, oh. what is it? Don't tell James January. That. Don't tell James oh, that. <laughs> uh, January 16th, if you're interested in going, there's two tickets in the orchestra for $28,000 each. Oh, um, I'll take and four. That, that's on StubHub. <laughs> yes. Um, but it just goes to show that um, the resellers are a giant market and Broadway and uh, different organizations, uh, including uh, two senators and two representatives are doing all that they can uh, to combat it. Mark, so, let, me, let me. Oh, go ahead, James. Uh, Mark, let me ask you two questions. Um, do you know if this is just focused on Broadway, or is it, or is it nationwide, or is it even global? Because I mean, I, uh, what the ticket sellers have done in the last you know, two two years or so online here, they seem to have been doing in at least the London market for a long, long time. You know, officiallondontheatertickets.com has been around as long as I can remember, and they're not really official or related to anything, you know. So uh, do you know if Google is just focusing on New York or nationwide or globally? The policy is being applied globally, uh, so it would have um, the London market, presumably, um, and also, it, um, according to their change in the other restricted businesses policy, it um, is a requirement for all event ticket resellers. Um, I imagine that um, the music industry um, was a big uh, proponent of it. Um, they were, um, I think Taylor Swift was involved with the Verified, uh, Ticketmaster Verified Fan Program. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that um, obviously, Broadway has been dealing with this issue for uh, quite some time, um, but uh, at least cons- uh, the senators and other um, uh, proponents of it have been very concerned when you also look at sporting events and uh, musical concerts, um, because uh, there was actually a settlement involving the FTC in 2014, uh, the third largest reseller ticket network. Um, had created uh, a website that was basically mimicking Radio City Music Hall. And uh, mm-hmm. it was deceiving a lot of uh, consumers. And 
Um, I think once you get um, all all the sporting events and music industry um, involved, uh, the amount at stake is a lot larger. And that's when you start start to see Google making these changes. I'm not sure if if it was only Broadway, then we would have the same uh, news that we had uh, (laughs) earlier in the week. (laughs) Matt, you had another question? Well, yeah, I think he kind of answered it. I just wanted to know what was the impetus for Google to go out and do this. Obviously, they're doing a lot of different things across the Internet, trying to make the user experience better with their um, Google better ad standards that they're starting to implement over uh, the next few months across the Internet, trying to make the way that users view websites better. So this is, to me, kind of in the same vein. But I think you know, when you start applying it outside of the Broadway community to sports and to concerts and to other types of events, it makes it a little clearer why they would decide to take this head on. But were there any statistics that they were able to give to say, yes, this is the number of people who were deceived or this is how much money people spent inadvertently? Were there any kind of data points that they gave that that showed what the impetus was to making these fairly substantial changes for how a lot of companies do business? Uh, Google has not uh, provided any of that information. It's not clear what prompted this action specifically. Of course, um, there have been various news reports over the past um, couple of years, especially with Hamilton, about um, the price gouging on the secondary markets. Uh, I do know that, um, at least in the United Kingdom, uh, there was a um, report that was um, prepared by Audience Net and Music Allied looking at the UK market. And um, the survey respondents indicated, more than half of the survey respondents indicated that uh, they had been confused um, by um, uh, ticket resellers, uh, thinking that they were the hmm. official ticket vendors. Um, so there is uh, evidence within other markets uh, that uh, consumers have been confused and felt like they have been ripped off uh, on the secondary market. Um, but I think generally it was possibly a combination of the government efforts with the Bots Act. Um, there's uh, some current lawsuits. Uh, there's one in California involving Ticketmaster and um, a, a reseller called Prestige Entertainment Inc. Um, but I think right now um, it's well known that there is um, a large secondary market and a lot of um, people like the Broadway League um, and uh, government officials have been trying to change that. And I think Google realized uh, that there's something that they can do. And um, I, I, I don't I mean, those websites are probably still going to advertise so Google is probably still making the same amount of money, and they just, I think, as uh, good corporate citizens, uh, realize that they can do something to um, improve t- transparency in the ticket market on the Internet. It's important not to get gouged in the secondary market when you can just get gouged in the primary market. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's really what it all comes down to is the reason that, you know, the theater owners and the producers don't like the secondary ticket market is because the secondary ticket market is making more money on their tickets than they are. And they want to be able to make as much money off of their tickets as they are. So they want to pull some of that uh, that inventory back so that they can have more money to make. So, I mean, it, it you joke, but 
it's no. not really a joke. Yeah. I floated the theory uh, mm-hmm. last week or the week before that these uh, increased grosses that we're seeing is basically because we've been able to uh, control the secondary market by raising ticket prices and the primary market so much. So um, this is interesting. Any thoughts behind uh, – uh, will Facebook follow suit in their advertising model? Uh, I have not heard anything about Facebook, and I'm not certain of their plans. Um, but uh, going to your point before, I think one of the main reasons that the Hamilton premium pricing is what it is now is because of their attempt to uh, reduce yeah, the profits absolutely. in the secondary sure. market and uh, attract that. Um, but looking at these record grosses, Hamilton right now hovering around $4 million at a week each week, um, it sort of makes you wonder how much money is really being made because that doesn't incorporate the prices on the secondary sure. market. Hmm. Well, Matt, Matt, did you want to say something? No, I. it's just uh, it really does kind of boggle your mind when you're seeing Hamilton do – you know, three to three point five million dollars a week on Broadway, and then you've got two tours that'll be out there. Then you've got London, and then to think that all four oh in Chicago, and also all five of those productions will uh, have secondary ticket resellers making even more money. Just to think how much money this production, this show, is generating is is really mind boggling. Matt, we haven't even reported on road grosses of Hamilton. No, we haven't. Maybe we need. That's because they're not readily available. But uh, I'll yeah. look into that. For, but I mean, you know, uh, maybe twenty eighteen. The, the larger theaters on the road that, you know, where Wicked was yeah. pulling in major bucks on the road, you know, far outpacing the Broadway production of Wicked because they had larger houses and were yeah. able to sell more tickets. I'm sure that uh, I would. I would bet that Hamilton on the road has broken that four million mark. You know, nobody has. Oh, sure. Anything. Certainly, especially out mm-hmm. in places like the Pantages at this yeah. huge theater huge in Los theaters. Angeles. That thing's a, a barn. You know, down here in Orlando, the Dr. Phillips Center seats 2,700. So I'm sure that when Hamilton comes through here in the 2018-2019 season, they will do quite well in their eight performances or whatever it is here in Central Florida. Well, Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, we're going to have a link to Mark's article in Forbes in the show notes. Uh, we love staying up on top of your work, Mark. It's been really inspirational for us here at Broadway Radio. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All right, Matt, what's up in the show and casting news? All right, so we've got one thing that's happening on a stage and then two things that are happening on screen. But yesterday it was announced that Tony winning legend John Rubenstein will be leading a staged reading of the new musical, The Sycamore Street Fight. No, not fighting fight club, kite flying (laughs) club. I, I practiced it and it just, I, you know, the first rule about kite flying club. No. Um, anyway, it's at Lincoln Center later this month with a score by Roy M. Rogeson and a libretto by Juliana Jones. Rubenstein will play Chuckles, who for some reason is not a creepy clown, uh, but a retired psychiatrist and the tie that binds his neighborhood and neighbors together. When Chuckles is dealt an unexpected and life-threatening hand, the choice he has to make affects everyone who loves him and even some who don't. Uh, 
The reading will take place at Lincoln Center's Clark Studio on Thursday, January 25th. And coincidentally, just out of nowhere, um, one of my favorite actresses from my time in Atlanta, Molly Coyne, uh, is in the show as well. She moved to uh, New York last year, and uh, I believe this is her first New York uh, gig. So uh, she's awesome. So if you happen to see this, she's the redhead. Um, we'll have information in the show notes if you do want to reserve a spot for the reading. Um, but if you get someone like John Rubenstein in to do a stage reading, it's something that I think would be a, a pretty cool experience to be able to see. Now, going from the stage to the small screen, yesterday TNT ordered the pilot for the TV prequel of the movie Snowpiercer to series. The show will be led by Jennifer Connelly and will feature Tony winners David Diggs and Lena Hall amongst the series regulars. The 2014 film from Bong Joon-ho centers on a post-apocalyptic world in which Earth has turned it into, into a frozen wasteland and what's left of humanity lives, get this, on a giant, perpetually moving train. The film is fantastic. The show, like the film, will deal with issues of class warfare, race, social injustice, and the politics of survival. The TV show will be set seven years after the world becomes frozen, so much, uh, you know, quite a bit in the past compared to the film. Did either of you guys see the movie Snowpiercer? No. I did not, nope. It's really fantastic. Chris Evans is in it. Tilda Swinton is in it. Jamie Bell, Octavia Spencer, uh, John Hurt, Ed Harris, Allison Pill, who's coming back to Broadway uh, here in a few months. She has a small part in it as well. It's a really, really good movie. And you think it's just um, another post-apocalyptic thing, uh, but there's a lot more to it. It had a lot of uh, award recognition um, you know, a few years ago, and it's uh, it's really, really good. So I highly recommend you seeing that and then tuning into this TNT show because it uh, it sounds really good and has some theater folks in it as well. And finally, this 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 next story has me so excited. If you listen to some like it pop and really if you aren't, you should be. And if you don't, you're not my friend. But I talked about this movie a few months ago, back in the fall, about things I was looking forward to seeing. Unfortunately, it didn't get released in the U.S. in time for the 2017 when we were talking about on the show, but now we do know when it will be released in 2017. This movie is called Anna and the apocalypse and centers on a high school student and her friends who fight zombies on Christmas while also singing show tunes. Because of course, um, believe it or not, it is based on a BAFTA winning short film appropriately entitled zombie musical. It is a combination of a holiday film, a zombie film and a traditional musical. This British film debuted at a small horror festival in Houston, Texas earlier this year and got great reviews so much so that Orion Pictures picked it up and plans to release it during the holidays at the end of this year anxiously awaiting upset that it hasn't come out here yet, but very much looking forward to uh, some zombie fighting show tunes. <laughs> it's great. I, I, I said I, my I, favorite, my favorite episode of Buffy is, is once more with feeling. So this fits perfectly. I, 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 I feel like uh, Neil Patrick Harris should pop up in the middle of this. So yeah, uh, <laughs> if he can do a British accent. <laughs> I'm sure you can. All right. Uh, in the recommendations section, Fast Company article on the business of theater streaming. Yeah. Um, Fast Company or Fast Co. is a, a website that looks at all kind of different businessy type stuff. James, are you are you a regular subscriber and reader of this website? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. So uh, they had this article um, that went through all of the the different 
business things that had to go into being able to record and stream Broadway shows. They talk a lot with Stuart Lane, of one of the two founders, along with his wife, Bonnie Cumley, um, of Broadway HD. They talk with Charlotte uh, St. Martin, who is uh, from the Broadway League, and talk about not only the the logistics of having to record a show, but the things about who gets paid, what has to happen, what are the negotiations like, all those types of things that we don't think about when we watch it, um, but, uh, you know, really is the nuts and bolts of what makes this stuff happen. One thing that really kind of interested me about this is that uh, Lane uh, does not just see Broadway HD stopping where it is now. He says that the low hanging fruit for Broadway HD has been limited runs of shows that have stars and Tony recognition. So people, a lot of people want to see it because it's, but because it's a limited run, there are only so many tickets. So they're able to film those, put them online so other people can see. But he says he has much more ambitious plans moving forward. He would love to be able to broad uh, broadcast live opening night performances on Broadway. He also wants to be able to uh, make shows available while they're still running on Broadway so that people who don't live in New York who can't afford Broadway ticket prices are able to see them. He very much sees Broadway HD as a gateway to a younger audience because of its affordability and accessibility. James, this is something we've talked about in the two years that we've been doing today on Broadway a lot. We don't know what... I'm still not sure what the commercial viability of something like this is, both for the streaming service and for the productions, what their incentive would be. But if they can find a way to do this so that people like Daniela and me who don't live in New York can see everything and anything that's on Broadway, uh, that would be awesome because it will get so many more people the opportunity to see what theater is kind of like. It's not exactly what being in a theater is like, but it would still be a great thing if they're able to make this economically viable. The only way to make it viable is for, you know, everybody involved in the process uh, rethinking their role in moving forward in theater. I mean, there's there there can be no sacred cows and things like that. And it's not just unions. It everybody involved in the process, from the writers uh, all the way through everybody else involved in the process. Um, but I'm I'm really excited that this is you know it's been talked about for so long it's really starting to move towards fruition and that's great so daniela this week's theater throwback i've been yes. waiting since <laughs> you, I mean, you so set good. the bar you set the bar so high you know yeah so uh today's throwback isn't too ancient and i'm sure that most people listening to this will remember when it actually happened but it's a bit of a slow week in history and this is fairly interesting not maybe not as interesting as the last few weeks but it's, here a, we it's go. a slow week it's a slow week in the news as well if you couldn't tell yeah. by the yeah. rundown of today's episode <laughs> Uh, not much going on in January ever, apparently. So uh, we're going back to January 9th, 2005, which was supposed to be Adina Menzel's final performance as Alphaba in Wicked. Uh, Adina had been in the role since the show's opening back in 2003 and, of course, won the 2004 Tony for her performance. So this final show was pretty hyped up. However, the day before it, on January 8th, trouble arose. Uh, near the end of the show, spoiler alert, there's a scene where Alphaba melts and she goes down through this trap door. Now, usually there would be some kind of elevator to gracefully lower her below the stage. But this time something went wrong and that elevator had already been lowered when she stepped down. So Adina just kind of fell. 
reports say that the show was immediately stopped. The curtain fell and Adina was rushed to the hospital still in her witch costume and green makeup. And the show did go on. After about 45 minutes, her standby Shoshana Bean came out and finished up the show. Now, as I said, this was the day before Adina's last performance. She ended up having a fractured rib, which I imagine is unbelievably painful. So, of course, she was not going to be able to perform in her much-anticipated final show. Shoshana, being her standby, played the role again for this performance. She was actually slated to take over the role full-time after Adina's run, so she kind of got an early start. Everything went on uh, as usual until in the final scene, Adina surprised the audience and came out on stage. She wasn't in costume or makeup or anything. Instead, she was just wearing this red tracksuit, but she went on to finish out the show for the sold-out crowd. Apparently, the audience's reaction was ridiculous. Uh, The New York Times called it a screaming, squealing, flashbulb popping explosion, and she got a full five-minute standing ovation. I'm not sure if that's exaggerated or not, but that's what they said. Um, even though Adina couldn't do the entire show and appear to be in a lot of pain, people were just so excited to see her on the Gershwin stage one last time. And luckily for both her and her fans, this actually didn't end up being her final performance as Alphaba. She never returned to the Broadway production, but in September of 2006, she did go back to her role in the West End production. So, Danielle, you're saying when... Spoiler alert, uh, the Wicked Witch of the West Alphaba melts. She goes down a trap door and it, the elevator wasn't there. So could you say that she did not, in fact, defy gravity? I suppose. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Two years That's... of doing this with James has rubbed, up on, rubbed <laughs> off on me. I don't know, Danielle. That's a pretty good story. Yeah. I, I really... <laughs> I, you know, I was. Around, I don't remember that. I was around for that, and I, I can't remember it at all. That's awesome. Yeah, that, I feel like I remember watching Wicked videos when I was in like middle school or something. And there was like a bootleg of this, and it would show up in my recommended. And for some reason, it was really confusing to me that she was like on stage in a tracksuit. Mm. <laughs> so, so Daniela was in middle school in two thousand five. Good, okay. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. All right, Matt, why don't you get us out of here before I kill myself? Uh, I know. <laughs> Thanks for listening today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio, and you can find me on Twitter at BWWMatt. And subscribe to Something Like a Pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Daniela, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Daniela Parcel and on Instagram at Daniela Parcello Well. And I was thinking about this talk we had with Groff the other day and Groff was like, yeah, I was 20 years old when I got my first Broadway play and right after that I got the whole uh, Spring Awakening thing and I was like 21 or 22 and anyway such young yeah, and talented his, people <laughs> His although his first Broadway show if I'm thinking correctly was bonkers and weird and made no damn sense Oh, it was a total train wreck. And we talked about yeah. that in the interview. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not, uh, not, not something that I think will ever be revived. No, no. It's just, uh, it'll show up in Daniel's recommended feed in her ninth class. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my name is James Marino from BroadwayVideo.com and BroadwayStars.com. It's Thursday. And uh, on Wednesday, the sun came out in the sky and it got warm in New York and everything. So it's all exciting. So um, Matt and I will be back and talk with you tomorrow. Tomorrow.